Uh, well, friends, uh, we all know the story of the Titanic, don't we? Uh, in 1912, the unimaginable happened. This massive ocean liner struck ice in the North Atlantic Ocean in the middle of the night. And within a matter of hours, what was previously thought to be an unsinkable ship was sinking to the bottom of the ocean. However, the real tragedy is, I think, that the Titanic was, was abandoned by those who could help. Uh, one particular ship, called the SS Californian, was close by to the Titanic on that fateful night. Uh, she could have actually come to the rescue of the Titanic, but even though uh, it saw the flames and the distress signals going up, it ignored them and no help was offered. Those on the Titanic were effectively abandoned in their most desperate hour. Uh, now this morning we are continuing on with our series on the book of Exodus, and I want to suggest that this part of Exodus throws up the question of where is God when life gets hard? Uh, where is God when life gets hard? Has God abandoned us when the ship is sinking, so to speak? Uh, you know, we've seen some amazing things that God uh, does for the people of Israel as we've worked our way through, haven't we? Uh, we've seen him free Israel from slavery by forcing Pharaoh's hand with the ten plagues. Uh, we've seen him parting the Red Sea so that his people can walk through on dry ground while he drowns the chariots and soldiers of Egypt. Uh, we've seen the mighty hand of God at work for his people again and again. And yet in today's passage, what we see is that while Israel have experienced the great salvation of God, well, life gets harder rather than easier before they reach the promised land. And you can see here that they are full of doubts about God uh, in the question that they ask in chapter 17, verse 7. Uh, if you have your Bibles with me, you can see it there. Chap chapter 17, uh, verse 7. Uh, the question they ask is, is the Lord among us or not? In other words, where is God when life gets hard? Uh, now, it's an important question for us to consider, uh, isn't it? For life does get hard. Perhaps this is a question you've seen your friends ask as they've gone through difficult periods in their life. Uh, perhaps uh, this is a question that you are wrestling with at the moment as you face difficult circumstances. Now, some might say that difficulties in life is something that all people go through, regardless of whether they are Christians or not. And yet, this is a particular issue for Christians, isn't it? Or isn't God meant to be able to care for his people and protect his people and deliver his people from these sorts of things? And so why is life so difficult for me at the moment? Where is God when life gets hard? Well, friends, last week we saw that there was an element of design in the way God leads his people out of Egypt, didn't we? If you remember, he didn't 
He doesn't take his people uh, through a shortcut, uh, straight to prosperity, straight to the promised land. Rather, he takes his people towards the Red Sea so that he could show his glory to the people of Egypt and the surrounding nations by what he does there. However, as the people of Israel emerge on the other side of the Red Sea, well, they find themselves in what is described uh, in our passage as the wilderness before they reach the promised land. And uh, in today's passage, you can see that they face uh, three uh, particularly difficult challenges uh, on their journey. Uh, we didn't read uh, uh, everything this morning, but in chapter 15, verses 22 to 27, if you just glance there, chapter 15, verses 22 to 27, they face uh, firstly the challenge of not having drinkable water in the wilderness. Uh, secondly, in chapter 16, which is the passage we read, uh, they face the challenge of having no food in the wilderness. And finally, in chapter uh, 17, verses 1 to 7, uh, they again face the challenge of uh, not having water, but this time they don't have any water at all. Uh, now, given that our time is limited this morning, uh, we're going to focus most of our time uh, in chapter 16. And uh, you can see there that Israel is facing the significant problem of not having any food to eat. Uh, now, uh, friends, this isn't just about Israel feeling hangry. Uh, you know, I don't know about you, but uh, if, if I don't have uh, lunch uh, when it's mealtime, um, you know, my, my mind starts to wander. Um, I can't think straight. And uh, I start to get snappy with people. Uh, don't talk to me when, when I haven't eaten. Um, I'm generally not a pleasant person to be around. This is a little bit more than that, isn't it? For in chapter 16, verse 1, we are told there that they are in the 15th day of the second month. In other words, they are about uh, a month into the journey after they've left Egypt, which means that they have not eaten for a long time uh, in the wilderness. And uh, I've never been in, in the desert before, but I'm guessing that if you haven't eaten for weeks... Uh, in, such a, uh, in such conditions, then your life is basically at risk, isn't it? It's a life and death kind of situation. And so how do the people of Israel respond to this situation? Well, uh, you probably uh, noticed and uh, you could probably guess that they start to grumble about what they're going through. Um, if you've read around chapter 16, uh, perhaps uh, in your growth groups during the week, uh, you will know that this is not the first time that they grumble in the wilderness. For in chapter 15, verse 24, chapter 15, verse 24, you can see there that they also grumble to Moses when they didn't have drinkable water. And it's certainly not the last time they grumble, because if you turn to chapter 17, verse 2, uh, if you just skip ahead to 17, verse 2, you'll see there that they uh, grumble again uh, to Moses because of a complete lack of water. But here, you can see that they grumble because they don't have any food to eat. And uh, just listen to what they say in chapter 16, verse 2. Uh, chapter 16, verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots 
and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now, friends, I just want uh, you to notice a few things here. Firstly, notice that behind the grumbling, the people of Israel envy their pre-salvation life. Behind the grumbling, they envy their pre-salvation life. You know, they they make it sound as though Egypt was like an all-you-can-eat buffet where all they did was sit around and eat meat and bread to their heart's content, which, of course, was a fantasy. The, the grass looks, always looks greener on the other side, doesn't it? But you see, they grumble because they envy and desire a different life to the one that God had led them to. Secondly, notice that they are forgetful. Not only do they forget what Egypt was actually like, you know, Egypt was a place of slavery. It was a place of beatings, a place of bitter bitter slavery and suffering. But they also forget the great salvation of God that they have just witnessed and seen with their very own eyes. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? These are the people who saw the frogs crawling all over Egypt in the plagues. These are the people who saw the coffins of the firstborn of every Egyptian family being carried out of their homes. These are the ones who saw the blood of the lamb that had rescued them. These are the people who saw the astonishing power of God in parting the Red Sea so that they could walk through on dry ground in safety. These are the people who took part in what is probably the greatest worship service in the history of the world, with 600,000 men singing their praises to God. Well over 2 million people, if you uh, think that you know, there were women and children there as well. And yet, they grumbled. And so thirdly, notice that this grumbling is an insult to God himself. I mean, they grumble to their leaders, don't they? They grumble here to Moses and and Aaron, who really can't do anything about their situation. Uh, Later on, we, we see Moses saying, well, what are we that you're grumbling to us? But Moses is also quick to point out that Grumbling against your leaders is actually grumbling against God, for they are really saying that to God that your salvation is not enough for us. They want to go back. You can see there that at the end of chapter 16, verse 8, Moses says, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Now, friends, I wonder what we are meant to learn from this part of Exodus. Uh, What are we meant to take away from this part of God's Word? Well, I want to suggest uh, that this passage is perhaps not meant to be read simply as a warning against grumbling. Uh, I mean, it's not like Numbers 11, uh, which uh, comes a bit later, where further into the journey um, to the promised land, uh, the people of Israel are still grumbling 
And what we see there is that God burns with anger and he judges the Israelites so that the the entire first generation uh, dies out in the wilderness so that they cannot enter the promised land. Uh, I think Numbers 11 and Psalm 95 and Hebrews 4 uh, are passages that give ample warning against grumbling because grumbling can actually lead to unbelief in a person's life. But in Exodus 16, you will notice that God doesn't get angry. And so I don't think this passage is meant to be read as a warning to us at this stage. Rather, I think it's meant to be a lesson on what God's people are really like. And as we see the people of God in the Old Testament grumbling on the way to the promised land, it's meant to be a a mirror so that we can also see what we are really like as the people of God. As the church. You know, sometimes we find it astonishing that Israel can begin to grumble so uh, so quickly after they've been rescued, don't we? I mean, uh, it literally only took them three days, if you have a look at chapter 15, verse 22, before they start to grumble. But think about how long it takes after you see the great salvation of God in a sermon at church, and after you sing your praises to God, and I sing my praises to God at church, I think about how long it takes before we start grumbling. Does it take three minutes, perhaps, during morning tea? Does it take 30 minutes, perhaps, on the way home from church? Three days, perhaps, as we grumble in our workplaces about our work or about our family or about our first world problems. You see, all of us grumble at times, and some of us grumble all the time. In fact, this very week, I was grumbling to my wife because I was running behind in my sermon preparation. Until she pointed out to me the irony of grumbling about a sermon on a passage on grumbling. Uh, It was very painful. But, uh, you see, she easily saw something that I couldn't easily see in myself. We often dress up our grumbling, don't we, as justified. You know? But I am a grumbler. And I'm guessing you are as well. And who of us don't know what it is to grumble because we are envious of other people in our lives? You know, you see that parent in the playground and, you know, she seems to be living such a carefree and easy life. And here you are with all your Christian commitments and responsibilities and wanting to love others and be there for others. Or you see your non-Christian university friend who seems to be doing so well in life at the moment, you know, you've just heard that he's up to his fourth investment property. And here you are, generously and sacrificially giving away your money to those in need and to the work of the gospel. Or you see your non-Christian friend who is, you know, living it up in her life. She's sleeping with whoever she wants. She's traveling wherever she wants. She's doing whatever she wants. And here you are trying to 
you know, live a life that pleases God, and you find that that life kind of narrows down some of your choices in life. And you envy them. You want their life. And inside, perhaps you and I even grumble and complain to God about the life that he has given us. Is that true? Uh, Now, friends, I think it's worthwhile to say at this point that there is a difference between groaning and grumbling. A difference between groaning and grumbling. You know, we've seen the people of Israel groaning in Exodus, haven't we? Uh, As they've groaned to God, as they've cried out to him to rescue them in their slavery. And I think it's right that we groan to God in this way together as God's people. Because uh, proper groaning is about recognizing our helplessness and crying out to God, recognizing that he is the only one who can help us. Humbly asking for help. However, grumbling is something very different, isn't it? For grumbling is a self-righteous attitude that says, I know better than you, God. You know, you've given me this situation, but I want another one. And I demand that you fix my situation right now. Friends, this is what we are like as God's people, isn't it? Or is it just me? We grumble, we envy, we forget, we are stubborn. Although God has given us new hearts to receive Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, and we have made progress, well, it's still true that our hearts are hard and stubborn and sinful by its very nature, isn't it? And friends, I think this is good for us to know, that this is what the people of God are like. This is what church is like. For it guards us against having unrealistic expectations of the church or the people at church. You know, so many people expect church to be a perfect place. So they get terribly disappointed when people don't live up to their expectations. Often when others let them down, they either think that it's time to give up the Christian life or they move to a different church where they are disappointed yet again because, actually, (laughs) this is what we're like. And so they move to a different church again, where they are disappointed again. Uh, There's a great story about the 19th century Baptist minister, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, And the story goes that a woman came up to him and said, Mr. Spurgeon, I'm looking for a perfect church. To which he replied, Well, Madam... If you ever find it, then make sure you don't go there because you'll spoil the whole thing. You see, we are often disappointed with others at church, aren't we? I'm sure you've been disappointed with me at times, as honestly, I'm often disappointed by people. But this is what we are like. And so rather than look for easy solutions that are no solutions at all, It's good to reflect on what God says about what we are really like and be amazed that God has shown grace and mercy at the cross to people like you and people like me.
Now, uh, how does God respond to the grumbling of his people? Well, he responds in an amazingly gracious way, doesn't he? Rather than raining down hail, as he did on the people of, of Egypt, rather than raining hail on them as they deserved, well, he says that he will rain down bread instead. Uh, you can see it there in verse 4 where God says, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. Uh, not only that, but look at how uh, generous God is towards his people. Uh, in verse 12, he says that not only will he provide bread in the mornings, but he will also provide meat in the evenings. Or uh, in verse 18, where, he says, where it says that no matter how much or how little the people of, of Israel gathered uh, of the bread each morning, well, no one lacked anything, but everyone was able to eat as much as they wanted. Or how about verse 31, where it says that, that the bread from heaven, which the Israelites called manna, which literally means what is it, tasted as sweet as honey, we're told. You see, this wasn't just boring old bread of the no-name variety. It was sweet, gourmet bread from baker's delight. See, God is so generous towards his people that they enjoy both quantity and quality of his provision out there in the wilderness. But why does God bring them out into the wilderness to supply all these things? I mean, why couldn't he just take them straight to prosperity in the promised land? Well, here's the thing. It's because God wanted to test his people. And you can see it there in verse 4, can't you? Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. Uh, now this testing is not like a test that you know a mean lecturer might uh, give in order to fail his students. Uh, you know, God has already saved his people from slavery, hasn't he? But rather, it is the kind of testing that is designed to train and grow his people, to be the kind of people who trust God and his word for their lives, so that they might prove, prove to be the people of God. Later on in Exodus at Mount Sinai, as God enters into a covenant with his people, uh, we see that God's desire for his people is that they will be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people who exist not only to receive God's blessings, but to bring God's blessing to the nations. Uh, you know, a while back I was uh, shopping uh, for some furniture in Ikea. And uh, I don't know whether you've seen this, but um, uh, they had one of their most popular chairs uh, displayed in a big glass cabinet. Has anyone seen that, that in Ikea? Uh, one person, Su Susie. <laughs> um, and inside this cabinet um, with this chair were these hydraulic metal arms 
that kind of kept on coming down, putting pressure on the chair again and again and again. Uh, the point was that this chair had proven itself to be reliable <laughs> for the job, uh, as 600,000 times uh, this, uh, this metal arm came and put pressure on it. Now that's kind of what is happening here, isn't it? God is putting pressure on the people of Israel because he wants to teach them and train them to be a people who put their trust in him, that they would be the kind of people who would be his people. Uh, of course, the tragedy is that the people of Israel do not respond very well to this test. When God says that after they gather bread each day, they are not to leave any bread left over for the next day. Well, what do Israel do? Oh, you can see it there in verse 20, can't you? Verse 20, it says, But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. In other words, instead of trusting God for their daily provision of bread, well, they try to store some of it for themselves for the next day and trust in their savings. Or when God says that on the sixth day they are to gather twice as much bread so that they would have enough for the seventh day and be able to rest on the seventh day, well, what, what does Israel do? Well, in verse 27, it says, On the seventh day some of the people went out together, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? In other words, rather than trusting that God will provide for them, well, in their greed, they go out to collect more for themselves on the seventh day. Now, friends, how can we apply this part of God's word to ourselves? Uh, well, I think um, there are many possible ways we can apply this passage. There are many possible lines of application with this part of Exodus. Uh, for example, uh, we could have taken this passage uh, all the way to Matthew chapter 4 and explored the significance of Jesus succeeding where the Israelites failed. Uh, if you remember, Matthew 4 is that passage where the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. And uh, you might remember that Jesus also is hungry. Uh, he is also tested. But where Israel fails in the wilderness, Jesus succeeds in trusting God's word and obeying him. In fact, Jesus trusts and obeys God's word all the way to the cross where he dies for the forgiveness of sins so that you and I who trust in him can uh, find forgiveness and become the sons of God. Uh, that's a perfectly good way to apply this passage, and we could have explored how that means that we live our lives not in grumbling, but in thanksgiving to God for all that he has done for us in Christ. Or uh, we could have taken it to John chapter 6, which we read this morning. Uh, you know, that's the bit where Jesus says the famous words, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so we could see 
uh, we could see in this passage how Jesus uh, offers this life-giving bread by offering his own body on the cross for us so that all who turn to him can have eternal life and true satisfaction. And we could have explored how true satisfaction does not come from the things that we eat and drink, the things that we so often chase after, but true satisfaction comes in knowing God and knowing Jesus in our lives and knowing the eternal life that he offers us. Again, that would be a good way to apply this passage. However, I want to suggest that this passage also shows us what we do with hardship in our lives. Where is God when life gets difficult? Well, friends, we mustn't think that God has abandoned us when we are finding things tough. For that is what God has promised never to do for those who are in Christ Jesus. Rather, God is the one who brings hardships and times of testing so that he can bring us to maturity and he can bring us to perfection in Christ. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, the Apostle Peter says, In this you rejoice, that is, you rejoice in the gospel, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, as God brings hardship and difficulty in our lives, uh, what he is doing is, uh, it's like he's sitting at the potter's wheel, moulding us, shaping us, changing us to be his people, to be the kind of people who trust him and to trust his word in our lives. And so, uh, brothers and sisters, as you and I face hardships from time to time, uh, on the way to our promised land of heaven itself, uh, will we trust God's word more than perhaps our feelings? Uh, will we trust in God's word more than easy solutions that seem to be so uh, promising but will deliver very little? Uh, will we trust in God's word and not turn back so that in times of testing we might grow and we might be trained, and we might prove to be God's people who look more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, let's pray together, shall we? Uh, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a gracious and generous God who provides for your people in every way. I uh, thank you that you provided for the people of Israel in the wilderness. And we thank you that you provide for us now. And that in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, you have provided us so abundantly by meeting our greatest need, which is that of forgiveness and eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that in light of this, that you would transform us more and more into a people who are thankful rather than grumbling, 
We pray that no matter what the circumstances of our lives may be, whether good or bad, easy or difficult, feeling light or feeling burdened, that we might be a people who can rejoice with great hope because in Jesus we have been given the bread that will not fail to satisfy us for all of eternity. And Father, we pray in particular for those in our congregation who are finding things difficult at the moment. Uh, We pray that you would comfort them and strengthen them and be present with them so that in their time of testing they might trust in your word, uh, that they might not turn back to Egypt or go with easy solutions against the things that you say, but at this time of testing you will grow them more and more like the Lord Jesus, that they would trust you and that they would know the joy of all that you have done for them. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.